morning. It is cold outside and I am cruddy. So hopefully I'm not going to lose my voice while we talk today. Um, I'm glad to see you all though, nice and warm in the chapel, right? All of you in your coats and scarves, ha. Um, we have a great day today. A reminder that next week as Thanksgiving week, we will not be meeting on Wednesday. And so I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving, one of my favorite holidays. Um, if you're traveling, be safe. If people are traveling to you, I hope that they are safe. Um, but we will not meet next week. So two weeks from today will be our next class. And if you need the schedule, the schedule bookmarks are here at the doors and you can visit online stmichael.org slash RBS so you can get that schedule and not make any mistakes and show up when we're not here. Um, a few little notes. There are a number of really great ways to give and be of service to our community through St. Michael during this holiday season. I hope that you have seen some of our volunteers in the hallways on Sunday mornings for both I Believe in Angels, which is kind of a gift. Um, we adopt, in a sense, children at Jubilee and give gifts that they may not have otherwise. But the way we do it is we provide the gifts and parents can go shopping for their children and it's wonderful. Um, the, uh, the other one that we typically do every year is Heart of Giving. Heart of Giving is a way where you can buy cards that benefit ministry partners in the community. And then you can send these cards to friends or family. And essentially it says a donation has been made in your honor to help support people in our community. And so these Heart of Giving cards are available on Sunday mornings, but they're also available today right after Bible study. And so Allison Bovard's back there in the hallway at a table. And so if you would like to get some of these cards to send to people rather than buying them like more junk they don't want, this is a great thing to do. I'm the worst at this because people say all the time, what would you like for Christmas? Nothing. Don't buy me stuff. Um, I mean, this is like the best thing that you can get is when someone's made a donation in your honor somewhere to help people in need, this is great. And so if you are interested in these, then Allison's gonna be right outside in the hallway or those of you joining us online, you can go online to our Christmas Hub page just right from our homepage on our website and you can make a purchase online for these as well. Let's have a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, Steve. Yes. Oh, thank you. Okay, so Steve just said that if you do I Believe in Angels through Amazon, which is essentially, I'm going to tell you what, there are like, we can talk all day long about the problem of Amazon, but one of the gifts of Amazon is that we can do specific lists. And so it's all digital. You can just add a thing to your cart, buy it, have it shipped. I know that there is a little bit of a tweak um, some people have figured out how to do the Amazon wish list to have it shipped directly to the church. Great. Other people have not been able to figure that out. And I don't know if there's a setting or if there's something else you have to do. I haven't done it that way myself. Um, I like to take my kids to actually pull a thing off a shelf um, and get it. But if you use Amazon and it ships to you, just drop it off at the church. No problem. We've got a whole big room full of all of these Amazon packages. Um, and so what we'll do is we take all of that stuff down to Jubilee. If you are interested in actually helping at Jubilee, I am certain you can still help. So giving a gift is great. If you want to actually go down and help on the day when the people get their gifts, the way this thing works is that parents actually that full way, this is probably more information than you want to know, but throughout the year, as members of the community volunteer through Jubilee Park and Community Center, they essentially earn service hours, kind of like what high school students do. Once we get to Christmas, the members of the community who have earned the most hours get first pick at the gifts. And so in a sense, the more someone volunteers, the earlier they get to go in and pick from the gifts in the room. But then once a parent picks all the gifts, volunteers from St. Michael actually wrap those gifts and then give them to the parents to take home to give to their kids on Christmas. And so if you wanted to be there to help organize the gifts and help people select, or if you want to be there to help wrap the gifts so that the parents can take them home, there are plenty of opportunities for that as well. So if you want to buy gifts and do something else, then grab me, email me. I'm sure 
Rob is in the back, Bub is in the back, Allison, we can all help you actually go down there and do some of that volunteering too. It's in early December. It's a week or two after, I wanna say it's two weeks after Thanksgiving. So it's early enough in December where people can get those gifts and take them home. Um, and it's easier for us because it's not right in front of Christmas day. So let us know if you wanna have that kind of, if you wanna help out this year in that way. All right, now, any other questions? The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We ask that you help warm our hearts, that we can be available to the musings of your spirit, that we can be transformed to be your hands and feet of love in the world. Today, we hold all those in our heart who need your healing touch, those who may be near the end of their lives, those who may be feeling lonely as the holidays approach. Help them to feel your presence, lift them up, and inspire us to be courageous that we can serve them as best we can. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I already feel my throat starting to close up on me, so we're going to do it. Here we go. <coughs> Pardon me. Okay. Last week, we got through a few chapters. This week, we're going to do chapters 24 through 27. And we, like I said, we are nearing the end of Saul's story. And then we're going to get to David's kingship. But we're still in the middle of David developing his own identity in relationship to Saul. And so today's lesson is going to come in three parts. <coughs> Sorry. First, David spares Saul's life. Second, Nabal and Abigail. And then third, David spares Saul's life a second time. Oh, good grief. I feel my voice going. Oh, I should have prayed for my voice. All right, first, we had a good question from last week. So the um, question submitted says that it occurred to me after last week's session that I had encouraged people to maintain a close relationship with God so we can be firmly rooted in God whenever crisis occurs in our life. The question is, <laughs> sorry, okay. The question, I have one. It would be so annoying, you know, maybe I should, hold on. I was sitting here thinking, if I suck on a cough drop while I'm talking to you, then you're gonna get the weird, like, cough drop in your mouth sound, you know, as I'm talking. Um, no, I have one. I really do like cough drops. I, I will tell you, because she often watches, um, whenever I open a bag of cough drops, it reminds me of my grandmother. Um, it just, there's a, there's a Hall's cough drop smell that just <laughs> takes me back. Okay. Um, hi, Grandma. Okay. So, the question really is, is it worthwhile to pray to ask God to keep our family members happy and healthy and to foresee certain events in our life that can be redirected or to be headed off when crisis occurs? And so I'll rephrase that. This is a question that we get every year, pretty much, um, and it's a great question to revisit, and so I love it being asked again. Prayer is not meant to communicate something to God that God does not already know. So I want to kind of start there. Do not mistake that God somehow doesn't know stuff unless we tell him. That's not how that works. And so we're not informing God of something God does not know, but rather we are, at, when we pray, submitting ourselves to God in a very direct way. It's a reminder to us kind of where we fit in the grand scheme of things. We, when we pray to keep people healthy or to heal someone who is sick or to keep us safe when we travel or any of those things, we're really acknowledging to ourselves that we are not in control. That's important to us. It is important for us to remember regularly that we cannot control everything and that we really are participants in this huge uh, life that goes way beyond anything that we can control. The, the question I think really rests on, if 
our prayers do not directly get God to act, which I think is a reasonable way for us to approach prayer. Now, this is, now I'm leaning into, I don't know. Um, and so I love this because, you know, as Episcopalian, we can just embrace joyfully, we don't know. But when I think about what prayer is really doing, I don't think, based on scripture and, and all of the tradition that we have, that if we pr say the right words, we get the right response. That's really not how prayer works. However, when we pray, should we then ask for what we want? Well, we are told by Jesus, yes. I mean, Jesus says to his disciples, you ask for what you want, yes. And part of that asking is deepening our own faithfulness. And so I've used this example in the past um, from my own life. I hate flying. And so anytime I get on an airplane, a, I, I, children not here, right? A, I will have a drink every time I get on a plane. I don't care what time it is. I, I'm not, I'm telling you what, I have a totally at 9 a.m. in the morning gotten like poured a little gin on some ice and I'm like, I got it because I do not like flying. And so I need to kind of like calm myself down. Okay, so I do that. Um, and then I also, when I get on the plane, I try not to like make a bunch of noise about it, but I always say a prayer and I usually wait as if it matters. I wait until we are taxiing because somehow the closer it is to take off, the better, I don't know, um, but I do. I'll like, I'll watch a video or read a book or I'll have a conversation and I'll, I'll sit for like a half hour on the plane. I will not say that prayer until we are taxiing to the runway. Um, I want it to count as much as possible. Um, and so then when we get on that, pr I pray, I absolutely pray to be safe, to give. I pray all this stuff because I can, I'll, I remember first time I went to the Holy Land, we connected in New York and I was by myself. It was a trip that I had won as an award. And so I was going for a couple weeks and we got to JFK and we're getting on the plane and I'm looking at all the people waiting to get on the plane. And you've got all of your like super conservative Hasidic Jewish people, um, the hats and the locks and the everything. And then you've got a whole cadre of people who are Muslim and they are legitimately like praying on the rugs over there by the, I mean, everyone was like super religious. And um, as we get on the plane, I remember being on the plane and I'm nervous anyway, I don't like flying and this is a long flight and we're going all the way to Tel Aviv from New York. Um, and at different points in time on the flight, because this is not so long after September 11th, I mean, it's years, but it's, I don't know, it's still in my head. And so r regularly on the flight, the conservative Jewish people would get up and they would go to the bulkhead and they would pray like this to the bulkhead toward Tel Aviv, I mean, toward Jerusalem. And then the Muslims, multiple times would get up and they'd roll their rugs out in the aisles and start praying on their rugs. And I'm like, y'all sit down. I mean, you are making me nervous. I mean, just pray in your seat because this is not, it's okay, don't get up anymore. Um, and so it was just, oh. Anyway, um, so I have that in my head. And anyway, so I always pray to keep everybody calm. Like I pray everybody has calmness, that their peace fills their heart. I'm, I'm telling you, this is the prayer I say every time I get on the plane. And then I pray that the pilots and the um, stewards all have skills and we can all have a safe line, like lift us up and take us safely. I do all of that and then, so I ask exactly for what I want. I want to live, that's what I want. And I always end the prayer by saying, I trust you, thy will be done. And so that's kind of where I answer this question of do you ask for what you want? Jesus says yes, so ask. But if you can include in that prayer the acknowledgement that God's not just doing what we want, that there is this level of trust that life's gonna happen and it's gonna happen in a way that we cannot predict and it will often happen in a way that we wish it would not, that we do not like, and that's part of faith. And so I try to hold those two things in tension. I ask for everything I want all the time. I mean, whenever I pray, I'm absolutely asking for what I want. And I always kind of tag like an asterisk at the end that I know whatever happens, what I really want is to trust God. Like that's really at the core of it all. And so I think it's a great question. 
And I hope that you all will do that because I remember someone said years ago, well, now I feel foolish for having asked for so-and-so in my life to be healed when they were in the hospital. And I said, absolutely not. You ask for what you want. We are told to do so and that in that asking, we deepen our faith. And so I hope that that makes sense. Any follow-up questions or comments on that? Yes. Oh yeah, the act of contrition. Good, good Catholic. Yeah, we want to like clear all of our sins before we die, just in case. I know. Um, that's like it. All that sort of stuff. Whatever. I mean, you all know what I think about that. So there you go. But yes, you pray ahead. Go ahead. That's no problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, so um, he said, funny that I ask for this stuff, but then at the end I say, but I trust you. And so that to me is the balance of the prayer is it, it is not one could conclude based on what I'm saying about prayer that prayer isn't necessary. Like we're not going to get anything from it. Why do it in the first place? And what I want us to disconnect is that the only purpose of prayer is for a tangible effect. I want us to disconnect that. And I've said that in a different way where we need to pray without being invested in the outcome. And that seems so strange because as children, we're, most of us are taught to pray to ask for stuff. And that's totally appropriate. But we get a little bit backwards when we actually think that the prayer gets us the stuff. That's not really what's happening. And so on the one hand, you could say, well, then prayer is useless. Let's not do it. Except Jesus says pray. And so I, to me, it's one of those moments where, well, if he's saying that's what we should do, we should do it. And I can tell you from my own experience Praying regularly is hugely beneficial and hugely formative. And if you do not pray, I really encourage you to pray. I think that we can often get, especially as Episcopalians, we can often get into this trap of thinking that prayer is supposed to be beautifully poetic. We read these prayers in church and they're gorgeous and they're well-structured and they're elegant and all of those things. None of us can do that off the top of our heads. So just don't. Just talk. All God wants is your attention. That's the most important thing about prayer. We attend to God when we pray. We attend to who we are in relationship to God. And so prayers should, if you can, be a bit longer. I mean, it's kind of like special time with God. And so say prayers regularly. Say them throughout the day. They don't have to be long. If you've only got 10 seconds, do 10 seconds. Better than nothing. But really, it's for us to deepen our dependency, our humility, our connection, our rootedness to God. That's really what it's all about. And so if we can disconnect the whole praying to receive an outcome, then we realize prayer is the point in and of itself. It's not about what happens after the prayer. Any other thoughts or questions? Oh, sure. Oftentimes, so the comment is, can prayer just be kind of talking with God? And so I have, I taught my children, and I think that we often say to children, um, just talk. And so I say that to you too. 
Um, you can structure prayers. I may have mentioned this before, but I've, I've never really struggled with, in, with insomnia or not being able to fall asleep except for once in my life when I was in fourth grade. And I, had, I read a very scary book. And so for multiple nights, I could not fall asleep because I just had the images of this book in my head. And so I finally, I don't know why, I just decided I would start praying. And so this is days of not being able to fall asleep. And so I started praying and then all of a sudden I woke up and I thought, well, that was great. And so part of prayer for me then became, and of course I was what, nine maybe when this happened? Um, that then made, prayer for me became something that helped me kind of calm or find peace. And so it, it never really shifted for me. Um, that's kind of what it's always been for me is almost centering. So you hear about centering prayer or mindfulness or that sort of stuff. Um, I think that stuff can sound a little hokey if you're not careful to think that really it's about just remaining present with God. And so the idea that we become friends with God is totally fine. I have said in years past, I don't really like the Jesus is my friend kind of stuff. Um, like I have friends. I would like Jesus to be my savior. And so like, I don't really need him to be friendly. I'd like him to be, you know, God. And so um, I don't need God like to be a warm hug. I would like God to be God. And that is just fine with me. And so I think it needs to be something that makes sense to you. And so play with it. Um, I mean, prayer is the kind of thing, see what works for you. If one ver version of this doesn't work for you, don't give up. Try something else, because I really do think it will make a positive impact over years. And that's one of the reasons why we do the daily meditations. Um, if you've never listened to the podcasts where the clergy here at St. Michael do daily meditations, it's less than 10 minutes. It's whatever the reading is of the day, a little meditation on that reading, a prayer together, that's it, nice and quick. And a lot of people I know do it like on the way to work. That's meant to just get you in a habit. You don't have to keep doing those meditations. I mean, you're welcome to. We've done, at this point, gosh, about 350 of these, I think. Um, we started in Lent of 2020, and we've continued each major season of the church. We just finished one for the fall. We're about to start one um, at Advent. Thank you. Um, and so with each major season, you can use these to help kind of guide you in your own habit of just spending a few minutes with God. And I really do think it'll make a big impact. All right. Anything else before we jump in? Thank you for the question. It was good. Okay. Let's look at section one today. David spares Saul's life. So chapter 24 is where we're going to start. And in chapter 24, we see that there's this interesting exchange between David and Saul. So remember, David's not yet king, although he is anointed. Saul is still king. Saul is still mad and wants David dead. And so Saul is seeking David to kill him. So remember, in a couple chapters ago, David has finally kind of escaped the palace. Kind of. It's not exactly that. Um, but David left Saul's presence. And David is now, in a sense, on the run. He's out in the wilderness with his men, a few hundred men. And so he's trying to figure out how to essentially bide his time until Saul is gone. He knows he's supposed to be the next king, but he is not going and getting the kingship through force. He's waiting, waiting for Saul to essentially die. Saul finds out where David is, and Saul goes after David to try and kill him. So let's just read a little bit of chapter 24. We'll start on verse one. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness of Ein Gedi. Then Saul took 3000 men chosen out of all of Israel and went to look for David and his men in the direction of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds beside the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. The men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David went and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. Afterward, David was stricken to the heart because he had cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. 
He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to raise my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. So David scolded his men severely and did not permit them to attack Saul. Then Saul got up and left the cave and went on his way. Now jump to verse 17. David basically goes out and calls to Saul and says, Hey, I could have killed you. And then, verse 17, Saul said to David, You are more righteous than I. I want to make sure we're clear. Saul says to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Today you have explained how you have dealt with, well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put, in, put me into your hands. For who has ever found an enemy and who sent the enemy away safely? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not wipe out my name from my father's house. So David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And we'll stop there. So this scene is a little strange in the sense that David, I just want to put this all in context. David's out in the wilderness trying to keep away from Saul. Saul goes after him because he finds out he's in Ein Gedi. David and his men hide in a cave. And as Saul and his army are passing by, Saul needs to relieve himself, right? Use the facilities. And so Saul goes into the cave in which David and his men are hiding. And so can you just imagine you've like backed yourself into the back of the cave and you can see out. I mean, you know, this is like dark in the cave. It's bright outside. So the people outside can't see in the cave, but the people in the cave can see out. And so all of a sudden, Saul comes walking into the cave. Saul starts to relieve himself. All of David's men are like, yeah, no, he's right there. I mean, you know, it's, it's so good. It's like perfect, right? Because, I mean, if you think about the least effective way to defend yourself against attack would be maybe when you're using the bathroom. And so David could have pretty much easily dispatched with Saul. I mean, hand to hand, Saul and David, on their, at their best day, David could take Saul. And so here it would be the most easy. But instead, David goes and cuts a piece of Saul's cloak off, essentially to say, if I could get that, I could have gotten you. Now, the whole story is just kind of stupid because you've got a cave in which you've got, what, hundreds of people? Saul's, A, Saul really doesn't know that they're there. I mean, please. And B, nobody's going with Saul into the cave. I mean, the king's going into the cave. He doesn't have people that goes with him. I'm thinking like Secret Service style, right? The Secret Service would never have let the president go in the cave without checking it out first. And so then you expect me to think that Saul is, you know, relieving himself and doesn't, under, doesn't hear David come up next to him to cut his clothes. Right. Okay. So the whole thing is just kind of dumb. But the point here is twofold. One, David still understands that Saul is king. Even though he is anointed, he still understands that the kingship matters. Saul was anointed at one point by God, and perhaps that anointing has shifted. Saul is still king. God could have gotten rid of Saul anytime. We have over and over again, God's just like, and that person's dead. So it's not as if there wasn't an understanding that if God meant for Saul to no longer be king, Saul would no longer be king. But David is not the person who is supposed to make that happen. Now, there is a dynamic to this that we're gonna discuss in the third section of today's lesson. So just hold on to that because that has a lot of ripple effects for us today. Second, David, when he is king, does not undermine Saul's lineage. That is a very interesting truth. As we know, a king's only as good as his heir. And so if another king takes over, not from the same line as the previous king, it is very common, and we see this throughout history, where that new king essentially kills everybody who descended from the previous king. 
so there can be no one else who can ever claim the authority of the throne. David does not do this. And I think that one of the primary reasons this story was told is to show why. So if Saul's descendants still exist when David is king, it could be that David is honoring this oath that he makes to Saul on this day, that he will not deal harshly with any of Saul's descendants. Now, there was a question that was submitted ahead of class. Um, why Saul asked for David to uh, keep uh, his lineage alive, his descendants alive. And so I think I answered that, but just to reiterate, um, we know if you've ever watched any movies or TV shows or you think about like English monarchies and that sort of stuff, by making sure there are no claims to the throne, a king essentially establishes their authority very strongly. Or queen, I say king, it could be king, queen, it doesn't matter. Um, but we just want to make sure that the other line is gone and nobody can claim the throne. So lastly, I just wanna to toss out that in the very first verse of chapter 25, Samuel dies. It is the most unceremonious person is dead kind of moment in the Bible. In a single verse, Samuel dies, everyone celebrated his life, move on. There's just nothing there. Uh, but I just want to note, at this point, Samuel dies. We get a new prophet, he's coming, but not just yet. Any questions about this scene before we jump to um, Nabal and Abigail? All right, let's go into chapter 25. So now in chapter 25, we pivot away from Saul and Samuel. Saul is still king, yes, but he's off the grid in this chapter. Samuel has died. Now we are really are with David in the wilderness. We find out that there is a rich man named Nabal, and Nabal in Hebrew literally means fool. And so anyone hearing this story would immediately know that somehow Nabal is going to do something dumb and that we're supposed to learn what not to do from Nabal. All right, so let's just take a look at this. We're going to look at just the first couple verses. Chapter 25, verse 2. We learn, there was a man in Moan whose property was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was clever and beautiful, but the man was surly and mean. That's a great like tee up for a story. I love it. Um, so again, we had a question submitted before class. I said the description of Abigail that she was intelligent and beautiful. Why the double descriptor? And was any other woman ever described as intelligent in Scripture? And I thought it was a great question. I didn't really know. So I dug as well as I could. I cannot find where another woman is described as intelligent or clever. In scripture. Now, I will say there are many other women, I mean, not many, multiple other women whose stories strongly prove that they are intelligent or clever or wise or skilled for sure. But those words are not actually used to describe them in the stories. And so Abigail is one of those women in scripture. We're going to talk about her in just a moment. But I do want to kind of big note right here. If you think, if you want to make connections of strong, able, impactful women in scripture, Abigail is one of them. I mean, if you had sort of a top 10, I do think Abigail makes the top 10. And there's many others who are really wonderful, but I think this is one to take note of. Okay, so now let's jump back in the story. So David's out in the wilderness, he's with his men, they're moving around, which means they at some point don't have all the stuff they need. They're not growing crops because they're moving around. They're not really herding animals because they're moving around, although maybe they had some animals. So they're kind of getting what they can when they can when it comes to food and water and shelter and all of that good stuff. I mean, we just heard a chapter back, they were in a cave. So it's, this is not a comfortable experience for everybody. Nabal is out in the wilderness, and we learn later in the story that David and his men were essentially acting like 
defenders for many of the people in Israel. So as they're out in the wilderness, just remember, you've got the Philistines over here and you've got the Moabites and you've got the Edomites and all of these non-Israelite groups who are still kind of around the area where the Israelite tribes are who could see weakness and then try to seize on the weakness. Well, David and his little army are out there and essentially they're kind of acting as a defense wall for all of the Israelite tribes people who are kind of out in the wilderness just living their life, including Nabal. So Nabal's benefiting from David and his men being out in the wilderness, creating essentially like a defense shield from some of the non-Israelite tribes. Does that all make sense? Okay. This is not clear. It's not super clear in the story, so I'm trying to set up what this all is. Well, Nabal, the way shepherding would have worked is you take your sheep out for a while they eat a lot of stuff and they grow all of their, you know, wool, whatever, um, their hair. Is that what it's called? Uh, whatever. Obviously, I am a very skilled shepherd. Um, and so then at some point when it's the season, you take all the sheep in and you shear all the sheep. So Nabal's essentially come from out in the wilderness, had brought all of the sheep up to Carmel and he is now shearing his sheep in Carmel. This is kind of like a seasonal moment when he's essentially getting some money from the sheep that he has been shepherding. David hears this. And so David is going to send some people to Nabal to say, hey, we're coming into town. Can you feed us? Because he doesn't say it, but essentially later in the story, we realize that David's been kind of defending the area so Nabal can raise a sheep without any problems. And so now he's like, hey, can you just give us some food, some water? And so Nabal then says, no. Let's look at chapter 25, verse 9. Chapter 25, verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have butchered for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword and every one of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword and about 400 men went up after David. So what's happening here in the story is David goes to Nabal and says, hey, can you help us out and feed us? We're out here in the wilderness, not doing some stuff. And Nabal says, who is David? Which, by the way, of course he knows who David is. I mean, at this point, David's like the big outlaw. He killed Goliath. He's been in Saul's um, palace. He is the, a known quantity. And so Nabal is just being a jerk in a way that we might not even really understand. So in our culture... We may think, well, you help someone out, I guess, when they need help. This seems a little extreme in the whole helping out kind of business, except when you go into a Middle Eastern culture, and it's not just Middle Eastern culture, but there are many cultures around the world, and the Middle East is, is no exception, where hospitality is always, always required. I, some of you may know my dad's family is Lebanese, and so we kind of have this in us where I love to feed people it's kind of in the blood. And so if there's ever an opportunity for me to give you way too much food, that is an opportunity I seize. And it's kind of part of the culture where it doesn't matter who someone is, where they came from, whether I know you or not, if you need something, we give it to you. And we see that all throughout scriptures. If you remember back to the story of the angels showing up to Abram and Sarah, they come right in. I mean, you show hospitality to anyone, and we see that over and over and over again, which is really what's in mind when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. It's not even just you help someone out when they're hurt. It's that you do whatever you can for someone for whatever need they have. And so part of this cultural understanding, it's important for us because we certainly understand that you should be nice. This goes beyond nice. This is hospitality that is extreme, and you are expected to do that. And it's not even just religious, it's cultural. And so the fact that Nabal 
is not showing hospitality to David and his men is really an insult. And David and his men have been protecting him and his flocks. So Nabal kind of owes him, even if he didn't know him. Giving them food would have been expected in this culture and a genuine insult to refuse. So Nabal is a jerk. And we knew, they told us, Nabal means fool. And we've already heard that he was surly and mean. And so this should not be a surprise. But luckily, Nabal has a clever, intelligent, and beautiful wife named Abigail who saves the day. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 14. So David strapped on his sword and all the men are going to fight. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master and he shouted insults at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we never missed anything when we were in the fields as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us, both night and by day. All the while, we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this, and consider what you should do, for evil has been decided against our master and against all his house. He is so ill-natured that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep ready-dressed, five measures of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs. She loaded them on donkeys and said to her young men, go on ahead of me, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now jump to verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and alighted from the donkey and fell before David on her face, bowing to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, upon me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. My Lord, do not take seriously this ill-natured fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Right? What's his name mean? Yeah. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now jump to verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to me today. Blessed be your good sense. And blessed be you who have kept me today from blood guilt and from the avenging myself by my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there would have been none left to Nabal, so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. He said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I have heeded your voice and I have granted your petition. Abigail did some good work that day. She was definitely intelligent, and apparently she was beautiful, which is going to pay off in just a moment. As we see, Nabal is a big fool. And what happens later on in the chapter is that Nabal throws a big feast. Remember, he's wealthy. He's got a lot of money. And so he throws a big feast after refusing David and his men, and Abigail goes to Nabal at the feast and tells him what happened and how she saved them. And then scripture says, Nabal's heart became like a stone and he died 10 days later. I don't know. Um, but whatever happened, Nabal was embarrassed, insulted. Um, uh, he had a stress heart attack. I'm not sure. Um, but one way or the other, 10 days after all this happens at the feast, Ten days after the feast, Nabal dies. Upon hearing of Nabal's death, David remembered the cleverness of Abigail and wooed her to become his wife. So, this whole scene gives us a look at David and a look at Abigail, who will become David's wife. What is interesting to me, uh, there are many things interesting about this story. You see David's human imperfection on display. So David asked Nabal to host them. Nabal insulted and said no. Now David could have just been mad and insulted, but instead David said, let's go kill everyone. So it's not as if David is some super righteous person. He was about to just lay waste to this entire community because Nabal wouldn't give him some food. But he stopped in his tracks by a woman we need to remember. This is not the 21st century. So when Abigail goes and does a thing and she doesn't tell her husband about it, Abigail's putting herself in jeopardy. 
taking that stuff, that did not stuff did not belong to Abigail. I mean, we can joke all we want about how like what's mine is ours. You know, what, what is it, the old thing? Um, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine, um, you know, in a marriage. So it's a, we can say that all that stuff belonged to Abigail just as much as it belonged to Nabal. It did not. That stuff belonged to Nabal, not to Abigail. So Abigail was technically stealing all of Nabal's stuff and going to give it to David. So when this happens, Abigail is putting herself at risk. She could have been killed for this, but she wanted to save the entire household. And so we see that Abigail really is a superb, selfless, strong person. David saw it too. And so only 10 days later when Nabal dies, David's like, I'm going to take that woman because he liked everything about her. So we also get this kind of strange moment at the end of chapter 25. If you look at verse 43, we see David also married Ahinoam of Jezreel. Both of them became his wives, so both Abigail and Ahinoam. Saul had given his daughter Michal, David's wife, to Palti, son of Laish, who was from Galam. What? Um, okay. So, I mean, that, that's it. Um, so just make a note. Um, there's no explanation. So poor Michal, bye. Um, and so David now has had wife number two and three, even though maybe he no longer has wife number one. Okay. Um, so the end of that section, any questions? <laughs> questions or thought about Nabal and Abigail? All right. So here comes the good stuff. I am, well, we'll read it. Okay, turn to chapter 26. Third section of today, David spares Saul a second time. This story sounds a whole lot like chapter 24, but even though there are many similarities, there are some important differences, and I think that this, perhaps of all the chapters for today, gives us the most to think about in our own lives. So let's just read a few verses here with the story. So chapter 26, verse 2. Same idea. Saul wants to kill David, so Saul's going out to try and find him. So verse 2. Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is opposite Jeshimon, beside the road. But David remained in the wilderness. When he learned that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed arrived. Then David set out and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Jacob's brother Ab Abishai, son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. There Saul lay sleeping with the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand today. Now, therefore, let me pin him to the ground with one stroke of the spear. I'm sorry. Let me pin him. Holy, I totally lost my place. Let me pin him to the ground with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can raise his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? That's an important line. David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him down or his day will come to die or he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now take the spear that is at his head and the water jug and let us go. So David took the spear that was at Saul's head and the water jug and they went away. No one saw it or knew it, nor did anyone awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. And we'll pause there. So this is another crazy story. 
David sees Saul with his 3,000 people camped all around him, and somehow nobody is awake protecting the king. I mean, any of us who have, anyone led an army in this room? No? Okay. Every one of us, if we stopped in the middle of nowhere for the night to set up camp, what is one of the things that we're going to do? Set a lookout. Are you kidding me? I mean, everybody knows this. So where is the lookout? And where are the people who stay awake at night protecting the freaking king? So, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So the whole setup here is nuts. That David can walk through 3,000 people to get to the king in the middle and then steal some stuff is crazy. But that's the way the story is told. David, so do not worry about the technical things here. Um, we had one question submitted before today's lesson, why the spear was stuck in the ground next to Saul. I have no idea, although I could imagine that could either signify where the king was, which might be helpful. It could also make it easier to kind of grab and use rather than it coming, I don't know. Um, back in the day when I used to spear fight, I never put my spear in the ground. Um, so, you know, we can be lost in the technicality of this story and wonder why this, why that. But what is different about this story than the whole relieving himself in the cave story is really how David processes not killing Saul. So I want to reiterate what David said. David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike Saul down, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into the battle and perish. Verse 11 says, the Lord forbid that I should raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now that's very interesting. We know that David has been anointed. You know who else knows? David. And so what is he really talking about right here? What is a storyteller trying to get us to understand about the way David sees this? Fundamentally, David is not killing the king that God put in place. David is somehow understanding that even though he has been anointed to be the next king, God's anointed king is still there. And so who is David to actually cut off the head of the king that God put there? Now, that dynamic is extremely applicable to us today. So think about how we understand leadership today, how we understand God's will in the world today. Now, a storyteller from the Bible can absolutely tell a story any way they want. We are living our own stories right now, and it is not far-fetched to say that in any political arena, we've not heard people invoke God's will in a very specific way or God's will being that a person is elevated in leadership in some specific way. We actually had another question submitted before today's lesson um, based on last week's lesson that said, um, I agree that we should put our hope in God and not a single person, but Jonathan follows David. Remember when I was talking about Jonathan essentially committing to David? Jonathan believes that God is with David, but I think people think that about their own hero leader too. So how do we know? And that's a great question. So as we read this story, Jonathan, who should be heir to the throne, sees that God is with David, and so he yokes himself to David. It is humble, it is confident, it is generous, and we can read this as righteous. But how do we know who to yoke ourselves to as a leader? So essentially, how do we know what is or is not God's will? I will tell you, every week, the clergy at St. Michael get at least one prayer request from someone who prays for certain leaders and that they follow God's will or that the country follows God's will or some form like that. That sounds very much like a partisan talking point. And it is difficult for us to differentiate 
between what people in the world, leaders in the world, are saying and what may or may not be the truth of God's will in the world. I mean, how are we supposed to tell? This is a genuine challenge for us. And my starting place here is that we never know 100%. But as we've talked about in the past, one can only be righteous when one follows God, not when one wishes God to follow them. And so I'll say this in a different way. We have many examples in the world around us, whether in America or beyond, where leaders invoke God in a very specific way. And in doing so, begin to confuse people. Because when a leader invokes God's will, most people respond with some kind of willingness to maybe question whether or not that person really is God's chosen leader. When a person invokes God's will, we then have to critically look at whether or not that person is doing the will of God as we have understood God from our own scripture and tradition. That's what's ultimately most challenging for us. And before you even ask, the answer is we cannot do this on our own. That is the way in which we exercise our discipleship. We are Christian, but we are Anglican Christians. We are Episcopal Christians. And the way we define how to determine God's will in the world is through the relationships we have with one another. We are what you might call corporate Christians. And so not a one of us gets to ever say unilaterally what God is or is not doing in the world or who is or is not doing God's will in the world. That's not how we believe. We believe that we as a community are best able to discern God's will. And so when we get together and we pray and we work and we talk and we think, that is the best way for us to get closest to God's will. When we talk about giftedness and, and just the way we use our gifts, it's never an individual act, which is one of the reasons why whenever we give or serve or whatever, we do so together at best. You've heard me say before that it's not a good idea to be Christian on your own. I mean, maybe, but it's not good because left to our own devices, we're going to mess it up. But as long as we hold together, knowing that we're never going to agree on everything, of course we're not going to agree on everything. But if we can pull and push each other in the loving, graceful way, we can all be better. One of the lines I like to use regularly is, God loves all of us just as we are. And God loves us enough not to leave us there. We all have room to grow. We all do something wrong. But when we do life together, we grow closest to God's will as possible. So here's my guess general life message. If a person in leadership tells you God told them to do something or that God wants them to do something and they ask you to trust that God did, say no. Because that's not how it works. We are not, we do not believe that is how God works. And so I promise you, if any of you are thinking, well, that guy or that woman seems so godly, when we put our trust in humans, the humans will always fail us. And so we have to be super careful and we have to be very faithful and discerning and not lazy to ask ourselves whether someone is or is not acting godly all the time. Because a person can be godly in a moment and then not godly in another moment. We are human, every one of us fallible. And when we hang together, then we grow together closer and closer to God. And the diversity in a community like St. Michael is something I so deeply treasure because we really do not agree on anything. <laughs> right? Great. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of because if any church thinks they agree on everything, A, they don't. And B, they're just, they're starting off 
seeking the wrong thing. Because God is so much bigger than we can ever imagine. God's always bigger than we think. And whenever we want to put God in any box, God will break right out of that box. And so do not think you know a right answer ever because we are always learning more about who God is and how we can be part of God's world. And so resist is hard, but resist and instead cling to one another and we get closer to God together. All right, gang, happy Thanksgiving. I'll see you in two weeks. Yeah.